0: Rejoice to sing those words that the anticipation of your return is not for us a thought of fear, but it is a thought of joy, great joy. We long to see things set right. We long to see your kingdom built, and we long to see men repent and come to you, O Christ. But we long to see your glory above all else. We long to see righteousness and justice on the earth. We long to see you worshiped and adored. By all of your creatures By all of the redeemed And so we long for that day Our hearts resonate with the ending words of scripture that says Come Lord Jesus come We anticipate that day when sin will be no more Not only the sin outside of us which grieves our heart But the sin inside of us which grieves us even more hindering the love that we want to give to you unhindered and free and full. We thank you that these promises are certain. We thank you that you have, by your wisdom, designed that we should gather as your people on the Lord's day to be strengthened in your word and the fellowship together. And we pray that you would accomplish that ministry, Holy Spirit, through your word, even now as we look at the book of Ecclesiastes. And to this end we pray, we thank you for grace, for redemption, for that better covenant in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Open up your Bibles, if you will, to Ecclesiastes as we continue to march through this um, wonderful book. Certainly, a challenging book in many ways. It's challenging on one side, on uh, this end, at least to always to come to grips with the thoughts of Solomon as he puts together in wisdom style, the style of wisdom literature. These great truths uh, for us. But challenging also, as well, challenging uh, who we are, challenging our view of the world, but in a way that brings us to greater worship, uh, to be more circumspect as we live here. Solomon was a wise man. Solomon didn't always live by this wisdom that he uh, told others. Solomon didn't always make himself the best example of the wisdom that he gave to others. But Solomon was caught up in many ways in the very things that he warned against, and Solomon's life then was perplexing, perplexing not only to us who look at his life, but perplexing in a very real sense to Solomon himself. Perplexing is he looked at the world and applied all of the great gifts that God had given him both intellectually and in terms of perception. The great gifts and opportunities that God gave him and in the sense of the, the wealth and the freedom to explore all of his desires. Many things that God had given him. Many things that most of the world wishes for and wants to happen to them. That's why so many people play the lottery for example. Uh, wanting to enter into that kind of wealth, that kind of extravagance, that kind of freedom that Solomon enjoyed. And yet at the end of all of that, Solomon was left with only this, failure in his own life and mystery in trying to understand the ways of God. Wise in many ways, wise with the wisdom that God gave him, and yet after he had applied all of the wisdom that he could muster he was left with questions he was left with mystery he was left to realize that the wisest course in life isn't to try to lay hold and control all that there is to be gained in this world but to submit to God to fear God and to keep his commandments that is the truest element of wisdom to fear him to love him and to serve him all of the erudite learning of every philosopher that has ever existed and every intellectual that has ever existed, if you amassed it all together, it would amount to nothing compared to God. It would amount to foolishness, actually, for the wisdom of God, though foolishness to men is indeed the wisdom that prevails in the end. And so this is where Solomon takes us again this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And we're going to I'm going to do my best to finish from 15 through verses 29, but that's where we will find ourselves this morning. As Solomon has come now in an even more concentrated way, and this is the title of the message, to realize that wisdom must live in light of God's sovereignty and the reality of human sin. And that is the title, Wisdom in Light of Sovereignty and in Light of Sin. If we were to summarize it, one way would be this, is to say that wisdom fears God, Wisdom fears God by resting in his sovereignty and recognizing man's sinfulness. And we could say then, man's limitations, man's creatureliness. Let me begin by reading in verse 15 down to verse 29, and then we'll look at this uh, more closely. I've seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. And wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken, so that you will not hear your servant cursing you, for you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know, to investigate and to seek wisdom and an explanation and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. And I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation. Which I am still seeking, but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices." And so is the wisdom of Solomon. Let's go back up to verse 15 and note first the wisdom, wisdom in light of God's sovereignty, wisdom in light of God's sovereignty. What does wisdom look like in light of God's sovereignty? Well, it begins with this. He says, I've seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. And so Solomon is here Applying the the mystery of God's working among men By acknowledging the paradox of God's providence in human life The paradoxes that that life is full of The enigmas of life What he has observed and experienced has confirmed That while God has revealed to us truth The way that he works out his sovereign plan Is to us yet a mystery It is a mystery God has revealed his word, he's established the foundation of truth and reality by which we are to understand and evaluate the world, but in his infinite wisdom and eternal decree and secret will, he operates at a level that is far beyond our finding out and confronts us with what we could describe as paradoxes, paradoxes, things that don't always seem to fit together, that don't always seem to be consistent with what we would expect, He's already acknowledged that we need to see both the good in our life, the blessing, and the adversity is from the sovereign hand of God. God is not present in one and absent in another. He is present in both and working out his sovereign will. And so he said in verse 14, In the day of prosperity, be happy. In the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. And so it is. God rules over it all. Now, what is striking about this verse is how it would seem and what makes it paradoxical is how it would seem to run against the very covenant stipulations and promises that God himself had given. Remember, Solomon is writing as an old covenant believer. He's writing under one who had before him the Mosaic law and the promises that God gave to his people for faithfulness. So, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, He would have known these words. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep his statutes and his commandments, which I am commanding you all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. He's preparing them. In his final words, going into the promised land in Deuteronomy 30, he says, Choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. And you could go on. God gave inherent in the covenant the promise that righteousness will produce life. Yes, there is an element there of the spiritual life that is enjoyed, the enjoyment of the covenant and the blessings in terms of the nearness of God. But there is the promise too of blessing within the land, blessing of fruitfulness, blessing of flourishing, blessing of long life that is directly connected to righteousness. And conversely, there is the promise that Wickedness will cut a life short Let me give you just a few Deuteronomy 30 Verse 17-18 through But if your heart turns away and you will not obey But are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them I declare to you today that you shall surely perish You will not prolong your days in the land Where you are crossing the Jordan To enter and to possess it Solomon's father David said this And saw. Psalm 55:23 Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days. And Solomon himself says in Proverbs 10:27, "The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened." So with those promises ringing in his ears, Solomon confronts us with a reality that is the opposite of that. Here, the righteous are perishing as he observes life and the wicked seem to flourish and live longer. What's going on? What's going on? This is a reasonable conclusion to be, con- or reality to be confused by. And it reflects in a certain way the kind of thinking that was behind Job's friends. If you remember, Job was suffering, and so therefore they said, Well, the righteous don't suffer, Job, as you're suffering. Therefore, you have sin in your life. If you did not have sin in your life, some secret and hidden sin, then you certainly would not be suffering the way that you are. Because that is the world that God has designed. It's the moral universe of reality. And you can't live contrary to that. And so, therefore, Job, it's obvious to everyone but you. And the more you defend your righteousness, the more you show your guilt. And such was their wisdom, because they're operating out of this idea. The righteous will prosper, and the wicked will suffer. But here, Solomon says, I've seen something different. The righteous are suffering, and the wicked seem to prosper. What's going on? What's going on? It is confusing, and it can be confusing. It is not however that God's word has failed. God has spoken nothing untrue, but God has within his providence retained the right for the sovereign exercise of his will. In other words, God operates at a level different than man. And we are confronted with that reality all of the time, all of the time. In the normal working of his providence, yes, the righteous do live longer, the righteous do prosper, they make good decisions, there's a, there's a certain sowing and reaping aspect of that as well. They live lives that aren't encumbered by sin and deceit and wickedness and abuse. We could say that the righteous would not uh, engage in activities that would cut a life short just in how they would take care of health and so on and so forth. As the wicked were. So there's a, there's a general sense to that in which we see God's blessing But it's not always the case and it's the exceptions that cause us confusion It's the exceptions that cause us to think more deeply And that's, that's where Solomon is uh, right now So that makes his, his counsel all the more striking And he gets to this and to how men often will respond to this kind of confusing paradox of the providence of God and he does that in verse 16 and 17 and you could put as a point there it's he's addressing those who are seeking to control life and he addresses and he he counsels and said wisdom recognizes that to seek control is futile and will ultimately end in ruin let's consider he says so then Because things are not always as they seem, and I see the righteous perishing early and the wicked living longer, he says, Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? That's a pretty striking statement, isn't it? Do not be overly righteous. Do not be excessively righteous. Do not be overly wise. Well, the first thing we would recognize when we hear a statement like that is how would it be conceivable, conceptually, that someone could be overly righteous? Doesn't God himself command in the law that you shall be holy as I am holy? Can we be more holy than God? Can we have a super holiness that exceeds God or what God's requirements for man? Or what about what God commanded his people in Deuteronomy? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. With the completeness of who you are and your mind and your affections and your will God is to be loved with all of of our humanity, all of our personhood So then how could one be excessively righteous or overly righteous? And how could that righteousness, by living consistent with who God is and his word How can it bring ruin? It can be a little confusing at first to read that What is Solomon talking about? Well, in light of God's requirement, he can't be talking about saying that we can be too good, we can be too obedient. That would make Christ foolish, who was the perfect God man and obeyed in every way. Then, in what way are we excessively righteous? Solomon is here speaking sarcastically in this sense not that there is a thing as too much righteousness, that goes against the very nature of God, the covenant, and the whole flow of Scripture. Not that one can be too righteous, but he is acknowledging here that there is a false kind of righteousness that is in response to the paradoxes of the world. How is it a wrong response? Well, in this way. He's addressing those here who think, say, I figured out the key then. I figured out the way to beat these paradoxes, to to beat the, the uncertainties of life. And it is through taking control of, essentially, religion and righteousness. These are those who seek to determine with certainty the outcome of their lives by what they do. In that sense, he says you can be overly zealous for religion, thinking that by that is your security, when in fact you fail to realize that God overrules your Will constantly, he does the will of men In other words, he's addressing here essentially the legalist The legalist The one who thinks that they are the masters of their destiny ultimately Now the greatest illustration of this of course would be And would be the most familiar to us Would be the Pharisees Now this is looking forward in time But the root sin is, finds a particular clarity In the illustration of their lives Think of the parables themselves that Jesus gave to the rulers. He said, they, God is sending them prophets. God ultimately will send his son, who is the true heir. And they'll what? They'll kick him out and fight, kill and persecute. Why? That we might gain the kingdom for ourselves. We are the masters of this kingdom. Yes, we give lip service to God, but in fact, we receive glory from one another. In fact, we are the ones who are the masters of the fate of God's kingdom and God's purpose. God will work according to our actions. And there's many ways that this works out. And this is what he's addressing here. And he says, if that is your approach to life, if you think you can unravel the paradoxes of God's providence and God's sovereignty by somehow determining an outcome through your actions, as though by doing certain things, even that God commands... You will guarantee for your life blessing. He says this, in fact, will lead to ruin. In what way will you ruin yourself? Well, one, it will become a bit clearer as we go on. You'll ruin yourself by missing the blessings of life, the good things that God has given. And you'll ruin yourself by putting your trust in a righteousness that ultimately will fail, will be empty. He's addressing here in verse 16 one wrong response is of the legalist who seeks to take control by what they do. But then he goes with that in verse 17 do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool why should you die before your time. Again, this is striking. Is 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 Solomon somehow commending here in Scripture because he's writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit? It is God's holy word. Is he somehow commending to us a certain moderation of wickedness? Like, don't be really wicked, but a little bit, okay, just make sure you keep control of it. Well, again, he can't be saying that. For Solomon himself has told us earlier in Proverbs chapter 8, that to fear God, which is true wisdom, is to, in verse 13, hate evil it is to hate evil pride and arrogance and the evil way every commandment of god is to reveal to us the dire consequences of walking in unrighteousness and outside of his will through sin comes death he's not commending here a little enjoyment of wickedness as long as it's too much what does he mean Again, Solomon is using a kind of sarcasm here and warning of the opposite approach, the opposite of legalism, the opposite of trying to control life and somehow obligate God through our religious zeal and devotion. Here is the other one, the one who holds on to a form of licentiousness and says, well then, since I can't control that, I will simply embrace a self-willed life and to live wickedly, to succumb to wickedness and unrighteous desires it is this person who becomes foolish by thinking that there is no consequences. Why should you die before your time? Don't you know that that life as well will lead to death? The falsely righteous will ruin themselves, and the excessively wicked will die the death of a fool. It's the attitude that is opposed to self-denial; is instead self-indulgent and gives little thought or consequences to the results. It's the kind of life that will bring ruin That's not an answer as well You won't preserve your life by being wicked You will in fact bring it to a nearer end You won't preserve your life by being excessively righteous Because God can override your plans at any moment And in many cases it is the righteous who seem to suffer more And who have a shorter life So what is the answer? What is the answer? His answer is in verse 18. It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them, or comes forth with all, comes forth with everything. And here he says this, essentially, that submission to God is the proper fear. It it embraces God's will and lives contentedly under it. And by doing so, receives all of the blessing that God has for his people and can live contentedly with those things that we cannot understand. It is good that you grasp one thing and not let go of the other for the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. What does he mean by one thing, the other, and both of them? He's not talking again about a little genuine righteousness and a little wicked indulgence and you can have a little bit of those. You can have a little dab of wickedness and you can have a little dab of righteousness and so keep a balanced life and then move forward. That's not what he's talking about. And it would go against what he commends meaning that the answer is to fear God. To fear God The answer is simply this Live with true righteousness And avoid wickedness And you can have the contentment That comes to those who fear God And the blessings that can lay hold That the righteous lay hold of In God's goodness In fact, that's how he's going to end the whole letter. When he brings everything to a conclusion, what does he say? This is when all has been heard, even what he just says here. Fear God, keep his commandments. This applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment and everything which is hidden, whether it be good or evil. The answer then is to fear God. And you lay hold of the blessings of the covenant, ultimately... You lay hold of the good things that God has given. You can know by experience what Solomon has laid out as a part of God's kindness, even to men in fallen conditions. For the t- person who is good in his sight, remember, chapter 2, verse 26 he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. He has given joy. He has given to this one to have an abundance because he is good in God's sight. He says in chapter 5, verse 18, we looked at it. Here's what I've seen to be good and fitting, to eat and drink and enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. This is his reward. To enjoy the good things that God has given. Not to live an ascetic life as though somehow by denying and some kind of empty zeal that it will produce All of your desires, long life, you'll control your destiny. It certainly isn't to lay hold of wickedness as though there would be no consequence to a disobedient life. It is to fear God, enjoy the good things he gives, but know that one will answer for it. That's what wisdom is. That's what wisdom Wisdom lives under the inscrutable wisdom of God, his superior knowledge, his holiness, and trust him in the mystery. But he goes on, and this is really more of the heart of what is his passage, or gets to the, the heart of part of his complexity in verses 19 through 29. It's wisdom in light of man's sin. Wisdom in light of man's sin. Wisdom in light of God's sovereignty says to fear him, trust him for the paradoxes of life, have a, have a zeal that for God that is true, not that seeks to take control, but is out of trust in him. Avoid what is wicked and you will come forth with good things. And you will have contentment. But there is a reality that runs through all of this as well. Is Remember that wisdom recognizes that man's sin is also a limiting factor. And so he says in verse 19, Wisdom strengthens a wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. Also, do not take seriously all the words which are spoken, so that you will not hear your servant cursing you, for you also have realized that you likewise have cursed many others. What is the idea here? Well, wisdom begins with this. It's quite simple. Recognizing the sin that resides in you, the world around you, and the world around you. Recognize that. Recognize that. Look at what he says in verse 19. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. If we can attain to the wisdom that fears God and comes forth with both the good things and contentment, then this is truly good indeed. Here he makes the comparison of wiser than ten rulers who are in a city. What is this wise person? Essentially it's this. Why is that he's stronger? The wise person here is, has something greater than political might and political power. They have, what would you think? Control over their spirit. They have a discernment that allows them to bring forth what is best. It strengthens them more than a Then ten rulers, political power will come and go. Political power is always subject to be taken away. Political power is tenuous at best and it brings hardship and it brings worry and it brings fear of loss to the one who possesses it. But the one who is wise sees through all of that. Remember he gave a similar idea back in chapter 5 when he was talked about wealth. And he says the sleep of the working man in verse 12 is pleasant whether he eats little or much but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Why? Because his life is filled with worry. Worry about work. Worry about loss. Worry about the things that will take away what he holds so precious and dear. But the wise person doesn't make that the end of his, of his intentions. Doesn't make the object of his desires but lives contented with what God gives whether it's much or whether it's little. Here, the one with power might seem to be those who have been endowed with the blessing of God, but here he says, wisdom before God that fears him is even better, is even better. It's wisdom in light of man's sin is wisdom that controls, first of all, the spirit who has an inner self-control. One says this, or Solomon did earlier in Proverbs 16, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Wisdom is better. In chapter nine, he says this, he gives an illustration. We're not gonna... I'll just summarize it. He says, "I came to see this as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small town with a few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet the reality is that in the paradoxes of life, the one exercised the true wisdom that delivered the city. It is." the unwise ruler or rich person who ended up getting all of the glory, the king. He says in verse 15, yet no one remembered that poor man. And so I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heeded. Wisdom is better, why? Because the city was delivered. The city was saved. It brought about good. And even though... It was not recognized by others. This is where wisdom comes in again. This one can live contentedly under God's will, can live contentedly under God's plan. This is the wise person. Life isn't equitable. Life isn't fair is the idea. Life doesn't always work in the way that we think it should work. Justice doesn't always get fulfilled. What is best and good does not always come about. There's unfairness. There's unrighteousness. The wise person can yet see the value of wisdom because of the internal strength that it brings, the good that it will ultimately accomplish, and live contentedly under God's plan. But then he goes on and he says something rather striking here. He says, indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. There's not there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins and also do not take seriously all the words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing for you have also realized that you likewise have many times cursed others so after commending the value of wisdom he gives essentially he stops and gives a dose of realism he gives a dose of realism and he reminds us that while wisdom is better wisdom produces an inner strength wisdom has contentment It brings about what is good For those who have it It is nonetheless It is nonetheless Possessed Even by those Who are not freed from the reality of sin And it's humbling And so it means then for Solomon here As he's progressing through this idea Of wisdom and sovereignty of sin Is to say look Wisdom While is a value to the one who possesses it. While wisdom is good, while wisdom is to be pursued, while wisdom takes to heart the fear of God, wisdom has its limitations. And wisdom takes seriously the condition of man and takes seriously the condition of our own heart. This is a a comprehensive statement. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. This is common uh, throughout the Old Testament. In other words, it's acknowledged that man was, as David said, conceived in sin. In 1 Kings 8, 46 says, there's no man who does good, who does not sin. Psalm 143, 2, in your sight, no man living is righteous. Proverbs 29, who can say I have cleansed my heart? I am pure from my sin. Indeed, throughout this whole passage is the recognition that while wisdom is good, man is yet in a condition of fallenness. Listen to the words that he uses throughout. In verses 15, 17, and 25, he speaks of the wicked and wickedness. In verses 20 and 26, he speaks of sins and the sinner. He identifies gossip, cursing, adultery, rebellion, such as the lot of Adam's descendants. It's really a devastating, devastating admission here. There is not one righteous, no man on earth. This is humbling. No one, not even the best, can escape from the condemnation of being unrighteous. No one. There's only one righteous and sinless person who has ever walked this earth after Genesis 3. And we know who that is. That is the Lord Jesus Christ, who knew no sin He knew temptation, he knew suffering, but he had no experience of sin whatever within him. This cannot, Solomon acknowledges, cannot be said of any other person. Certainly he did not yet know of the fullness of the revelation of Christ. But this could be said of no other person. No other person. Sin ruins even, even the good things that God would give. It didn't Wisdom or sin ruined his own father, David. Solomon's own own history, family lineage, was born out of an illicit relationship. His brother died as a consequence of his father's sin with his mother, Bathsheba. David came as a result of that union, and yet it was a union sinfully gained, showing the mercy of God, working again contrary to what we would think. It just shows that even among the most exalted among men, one of the most righteous kings of Israel, David, yet sin corrupted the things that he did. The Apostle Paul himself Even in his maturity as an apostle, says this in Romans 7, no good thing dwells within me that is in my flesh. Jesus, speaking to the crowds, even acknowledging their goodness and care for children, says if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, even in doing good, you cannot escape the consequence of being evil. Wisdom must lay a hold of this. It must lay a hold of this. We're not good people who occasionally do bad, but bad people spiritually, corrupt people who sometimes do good. How often, as you said in yourself, even if somebody praises you, if you only knew what went on in my heart, if you only knew what went on in my heart, I imagine if most of us had a constant projector of the thoughts and the things that go on in our heart all the time, we would have no more friends. We would be miserable. One said this, If sin were the color blue, we do not occasionally say or do something blue. All that we say, do, and think has some taint of blue. The only one it's not so with is Jesus. Or another said this, I cannot so much as confess my sins, but my my confessions are aggravations of them. My repentance needs to be repented of. My tears want washing. The very washing of my tears needs still to be washed over again with the blood of my Redeemer. Even the most righteous among us knows that within us resides the presence of sin, that if it were not checked and kept by, uh, by the Spirit of God within us, that we would be capable of the most heinous sin in every sin that we see around us. It is the constant companion of every person. To the unbeliever, they are dominated by it. They are under its dominion. And for the believer, is not under its dominion, but is constantly perplexed and vexed by it. The remaining sin that's in the heart. And so Solomon acknowledges this, and wisdom begins with that. It begins with understanding sin is a pervasive reality of every human being. Therefore, in contrast to the one who thinks they can be excessively righteous, they would be wise to realize that you are unrighteous. That's a connection. To the one who thinks they can control and figure everything out because of their own wisdom, he reminds them, you yet have a mind corrupted by sin. You must begin there and own that Sin is a part of our experience That's why for a believer We we long to be freed from sin forever The potential for every kind of evil Still rides within us So opposed to the one Who would be excessively righteous And seek to be overly wise One as well said this When we stand before God We plead not our righteousness But the forgiveness of our unrighteousness And that's the only plea that we have And so until we understand that, we will not be wise. And so he gives an application of it in verse 21. Why does he say that? What does it introduce? Well, this isn't the sum of it, but this certainly gets to the heart of how it affects a wise person. He says also then, do not take seriously all the words which are spoken that you will not hear your servant cursing you for you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. So, how does wisdom respond to this reality? It responds with the requisite humility to live circumspectly in light of the sin of others against us. Do not take seriously all the words that are spoken. Do not take seriously all the words that are spoken. For you know, literally, your heart knows that you likewise have many times cursed others. Think about this. Think about all of the things that you've said about someone else that you wish they never heard or that you hope they never hear. Is anybody guilty of that? Let's raise our hands. No, I'm kidding. You don't know. <laughs> then we're gonna go, who, who are you? Who'd you say that against? We all understand that. The mouth exposes our heart. Our tongues are a restless evil. We speak against others very often. We say things that we hope they would never... How many times have you ever said something in a conversation publicly and then that person walks up and you're like, your heart goes... Or I hope they didn't hear that. I hope that they didn't hear what I just said about them. How many times have you said things, even privately, that you later regretted? You said out of a moment of anger, irritation, or frustration... This is what he's talking about here. But here he notes something else. It's not merely that those things are said. This is the, the, the wise person who doesn't take those things seriously. And really, behind here is the, the implication that maybe this person was actually listening for it. Hoping that if they, they spied in on a private conversation, they might hear something that is self-flattering. But rarely is that the case. In fact, it was something that was... Unflattering It was a cursing against them Somebody speaking out of anger But he says don't take that too seriously If you're wise You won't take that too seriously First of all you won't try to spy into these secret conversations And secondly when you hear those things that are contrary to your praise You'll take it in stride How? Well he says For you have realized For you also have realized, or you have taken to heart, that you likewise have many times cursed others. How easy it is to be grieved by the sin of others when we seem to be so much less impacted by our own sin. This is wisdom. This is the beginning of the fear of God. When you hear something spoken against you, you have a sin done against you. It is to realize that sin is the curse on all of us and that I have sinned In the same way, haven't you noticed that sometimes the things that, this is just kind of a footnote, that irritate you most about others are the things that are true of yourself? Have you ever found that? That's true. Here in a much more profound and serious sense, the sins that others commit against us, we are also guilty of the same. And wisdom is circumspect about this. And it says, I'm not going to take it seriously. I'm not going to let that be the devastation of my life. And I certainly am not going to try to take out revenge or retribution against those who have harmed me. And again, this would be at the heart of self-righteousness. And a self-righteous person and a proud person can be identified very often in many ways, but here's one. Easily offended. Easily offended. A delicate little bubble, a delicate little flower that when somebody opposes me or crosses my way, I'm easily offended, lacking a kind of patience, a kind of humility that can absorb those things in the light of who we are in our own sin, in the light of a fallen world, in the light of the grace that's provided by Christ. And so here he says, the wise person doesn't live with that kind of sensitivity we're not so easily broken. We realize that the sin is a reality and it's going to come against us at times and we're going to sin against others. We can trust God in the midst of this. And there is a certain general sense in which we can apply this wisdom to our own attitude toward unbelievers. We don't minimize or mitigate the reality and the evil of sin, yet we have been rescued from grace. Remember that the only thing that separates us from that most vile in the world is grace. Right? Paul instructs us in this way. To malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts, pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, we were brought into that grace. So we look, and the wisdom here says, look, I look at that, and I realize... That that same propensity to evil resides in me and every evil that I see outside of me, I've actually committed myself indeed, or at least in principle of hard attitude. I'm guilty. And so I can wisely be gentle and deal with the foolish. And I cannot be so easily offended. And that, Solomon says, is a wise person. A wise person. And then he takes it even more. Look at what he says. I tested all of this with wisdom. And I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. Again, he's recognizing his limitations. He says, What has been remote and exceedingly mysterious? Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know, to investigate, and to seek wisdom and explanation, and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. I tried to understand, how does all of this work together? Where does this sin come from? Where is this foolishness? What is it that so corrupts the way of man, that so ruins the experience of man on earth? I sought to know. He put all of his energy into it. He says, I tested all of this. I wanted to know how does this work together? How do the complexities of life, the paradoxes of life, the reality of human sin, how is all this to be understood? And so he used every ability that he had to search it out. And at the end of the day, with all of his efforts, with all of his opportunity, he simply could come to this conclusion... It's exceedingly mysterious. I don't understand it. I can't fit it all together. I can't make sense of it all. Sin is confusing. Sin itself is perplexing. God's providences are past finding out. This is an admission, really, of humility. Of humility. And it stands in direct contrast, again, to the unbelieving, to the unbelieving mind. How does it do that? Look, fallen man professes to be wise, but they have become fools. Solomon sought, here was Solomon's problem, right? We looked at this at the beginning, and this is the the error of man. Solomon sought to be wise on his own terms. That was the issue. How many times did did we learn when he gave us through an accounting of his life and he said, I enlarged my works. I built houses. I made gothens. I made ponds. I sought to do this. I sought pleasure. I sought wealth. I sought all of these things. Why? On his own terms. And that was the problem. And that essentially was the error that Solomon fell into where he, seeked, he, he ceased to seek wisdom under the sovereign hand of God, and the fear of God. He wanted to take control of it himself. And this is a, a sense in which Solomon himself fell into the very commandment that he, he uh, encourages against in verse 16 to be overly wise, to think that somehow by my wisdom, I'm going to lay hold of it. I'm going to control this beast. I'm going to get to the bottom of it. And what he found is the more that he saw it, the more that he realized it was past him. And the only wise response was to trust God. But again, that's the end of the leather. And this is at the heart of man. What does man want to do? They want an autonomous knowledge, they want something that does not submit to God. God's wisdom is foolishness, his word is mocked, his covenant is denied. Christ is rejected. Why? Because we are going to lay hold of us. This is our earth. It's our planet. We control it. We are the masters of it. We are the captains of our soul and the rulers of our fate and the determiners of our destiny. We are going to lay hold of it on our own. We are going to find knowledge that is the answer to all of man's problems. We're going to do it. We have the solutions. There's many examples of this, even in our age, all around, the same kind of error. In our modern age, particularly, the foolishness of scientism, different from science, where we actually learn and we grow and we come up with a lot of neat and helpful things. Scientism is the idea that that science is almost a deity in and of itself. It is the answer to all of man's problems. you turn on the news and how many times do you have to see or hear that science is appealed to as if it is the ultimate ability for man to know and control their destiny in this world? Science will give us the answer. Science will solve the problems of disease. We do that and it's affected the, the church in many ways. How about the science so-called of psychology? We're going to define man's truest needs and truest problems and even if you have a Christian psychologist and it's not to say there aren't certain good things that are done and sometimes through observation and those kind of things that can be helpful but it is to say that the church embraces this kind of wisdom whereas the truest and deepest explanation of man and their problems needs a professional psychologist and that scripture can come in as a secondary support sometimes along the way. How many times did they say that if you have general problems in life, go to your pastor? If you have real problems, go to a psychologist. We have the answers. God's wisdom, God's word is simply too simplistic to deal with the difficulties of life. That may have worked for an older, more primitive age who didn't have all of the advances and knowledge that we have now. But now to deal with the real issues of human life, why would we look to scripture? It has general spiritual nice things to say, but it certainly can't address our deepest needs and the complexities of life. This kind of arrogance runs just as much today as it did in Solomon's life. And so here he addresses and he says, look, I had all of the opportunities to learn and to know and I directed my mind towards it and it left me only with no answers. No answers. And the truly wise person, as Solomon unfortunately had to learn at the end of his life, and many have to learn after years of wasting their lives in the devastation of rejecting God's wisdom is to learn that true wisdom is to realize that we're ignorant. Calvin, as an often repeated uh, phrase, called it a learned ignorance. In other words, the point was, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. That's why true knowledge produces humility. Certainly in the Christian, the more we know of God then the more we realize we don't know in his vastness and his greatness and the infinite uh, glories of his being, and we're left humbled. But that happens even, uh, there's analogy even in in the secular world. If someone is a scientist or someone has any kind of field of learning, the more they know, the more they realize that they have more questions and they have answers. They have more things they need to know. In the medical world, there's been great advances, but the true one who... Understands medicine and the complexities of the human body and so forth realizes there's so much we don't understand still There's still so far to go And so there's a humility the more you know the more that you Realize you don't know that is in the case of scientists and other areas of learning But all the more when it comes to the knowledge of god and this world the more you try to figure it out The more you realize that we're really pretty ignorant That's where humility comes from So true wisdom is to recognize this and live contentedly then under the wisdom of God as he has revealed it in his word. It really comes down to this. And do we believe that scripture is God's word? It really comes down to that. Do we really believe that God created all things for his own glory and for his own purpose? That God created a moral universe? That God created and is a, bringing things to an appointed end that he has determined and that he's told us the wisest way to get there. It really comes down to whether we believe Scripture is God's word and we say, look, I know that there might be many competing things for my attention. There might be many competing things that declare or claim to be truth. But I'm going to stand firmly on God's word. I'm going to let what's mysterious remain a mystery and I'm going to let what's revealed be the foundation of my life and my thinking by which I evaluate everything else. It comes down to that. It's to live under the revelation of God. It's to live happily with mystery. Pursue what we can know but also know our limits of what we can never know and what we don't know. That's what Solomon had to learn the hard way. Look, the reality is, as much as we, if we take this into a broader picture, as much as we're thankful for medical science, it will not eliminate death and disease, ever. It won't happen. Psychology has not produced a world and a people of greater joy, contentment, and inner strength, and happiness and peace, and stableness of heart and mind. It hasn't done that. The world is not free from war and disaster and the dangers of a groaning creation on which we all live. Cannot do it. Only God can do this, and God will do this. It's God's world. He created it. He rules it with wisdom and understanding that infinitely exceeds anything that man can discover. One has said this. Sorry, I didn't get the quotes to Mike in time for up there, so we'll just have to listen. The only safe kind of human wisdom is wisdom rooted in God and centered in Jesus Christ, which thus knows its limitations and boundaries. The nature and character of God is revealed in Jesus Christ and in the scriptures that testify to him is also the reference point that Christians need to use when confronted by claims about reality others may make and when faced with plans that others may have that arise out of these claims. In other words, we are constantly confronted with truth claims and realities that we are going to conform to. And either Scripture is the foundation of those by which we discern everything else, or Scripture itself is subject to the wisdom of man. It's that simple. It's that simple. And so Solomon had ceased to live under that kind of humble ignorance. That kind of humble sense to say, I'm on a a mission to discover something on my own terms which I cannot discover and never understand. If Solomon would have stuck with this, he would have become truly wise. And he would have known the true blessings of wisdom, of life, of peace, and joy, a life well lived. He would have known that. He would not have known the corruption of his own heart that ultimately led him to apostatize. He would not have been led to a life and to sin that eventually would cause the nation of Israel to be split in two for generations with much turmoil and war and ultimately the judgment of God. When he sought it on his own terms, it brought again, what did he say in verse 16? It brought ruin. It brought ruin to his life. He thought he could control it. He thought he could be its master. He thought he could be the one that rose above everyone else as having figured it all out. And what he found out is, Solomon, you don't know anything. You'd be wise to listen to God, to fear him, to recognize your ignorance, to live contentedly under his will, to enjoy the good things that he gives. He's going to end there. And realize that sin has a power in humanity and in your own heart that you'll never be able to figure out either. It wields its seducing power over men and ultimately it's going to ruin every good thing that God has made. It creates bitterness and sorrow and even death in a world that God designed for good. And we're gonna have to wrap it up there and finish it up next week. But here's the lessons that we take away. True wisdom is to be found in one place, one place and one place alone. And that is in scripture and it's witness to Jesus Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so you can ask yourself, what are the things that compete to it? What areas do you feel that Or that you experience in your life Or do you Where the knowledge of man And the knowledge of God And the knowledge of this world And the knowledge of humanity The knowledge of right and wrong Goes up against culture Goes up against the claims of intelligentsia And the universities The obvious Which is Solomon is going to take us into And we'll look at next week Is sexuality Is it okay love to be marrying a man and a woman a woman is it that's what the world will tell us that's where as christians we know no this is god's world he told us how sexuality works he told us where there's blessing in the genders and in sex and there's a right way and there's a wrong way and we're going to live by it what about the many other things as well And so we have to answer that question is, do I stand on God's word? Am I okay with mystery? Even if there's things that seem to conflict with my own reasoning and my own understanding, where do we go to find the answer? Is it scripture or somewhere else? And then scripture is secondary. That really becomes the issue. The idea of the sufficiency of scripture is not merely a doctrinal point. It is at the very foundation of our Christian life. We either embrace it as such or we don't. We stand firmly on God's word. There's mystery, but that's okay because the one who rules over that mystery has told us how to live wisely, has told us how to live with his blessing, has told us how to have peace even in a chaotic world. And at the end of the day, it's all centered in his revelation of Jesus Christ to know him, to serve him, and to love him. And so that's where we will leave it this morning. So let me pray for us, and then John will lead us in a closing hymn. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can stand on it because we are ignorant and foolish and sinful people. Even we who have been made new, who experienced the reality of regeneration, have been granted faith and repentance, who have the indwelling spirit to illumine to us the glories of scripture, to preserve us and to teach us and to instruct us and to guide us and to lead us. Even though sin is no longer that which reigns in us, it is yet present. And we, O Lord, ask that you would help us to learn that wisdom that is wrapped up in Christ where we realize that we stand in grace alone. We stand under the authority of your word. We live under the authority of him who is revealed there, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is returning Help us, Lord, to know your word, to love your word. Help us to walk humbly with our God and to be useful to you in this world until you return. And Lord, if there are any here who in their mind and their hearts are standing in their own pride and their own confidence that they know a better way, that they're going to lay hold and find the answer themselves, that they'll somehow find the balance that will all work out in the end, will you crush that pride within them? Will you show them the foolishness? Will you show them the reality of the ignorance that resides in them so that they might be led to the true source of wisdom and goodness and life in Christ? And so these things we pray, our Lord, in your majestic and holy name, amen.